So today we are in the fourth message in our series on contentment. Contentment in a discontent world. Because that's really where we live. We've been placed here. So how do we deal with this? How do we find peace and joy in the chaos of our world and our lives? Now I heard a good analogy for contentment. Because um, that word in Greek, the passage, you know, we learn that, hey, you can actually learn contentment, you can have it. But it's almost like this metaphor of like eating a good meal. Not like so much that you're stuffed and have to like loosen your pants. But like that perfect meal that you eat and you're just like, man, that was perfect. I ate just enough. I feel so good. And you're just happy there and content. That feeling is the contentment that we can have all the time. It's like a spiritual and emotional thing of peace and happiness. And that's what we're looking for. So in the first week in our series, we learned that it is something that's possible. It is something that we can learn, and it isn't about changing our situation. I mean, isn't that what we so often think? Like, if I just got married, if I just have that kid, if I just get the new house, if I just change my job, then I'll be content. But it doesn't happen that way. It's not about changing our situation, we learned, but about the source of our strength. We need Jesus in our lives so that we can have contentment through all the situations in our life and all the circumstances. And then in the second week, when we were talking about contentment... um, I can't even remember. Okay, we, we had to talk about um, that habit of worry. Isn't that what we do when we feel stress and anxiety? What we do, we feel the anxiety bubbling up on ourselves, even physically, and then we feel like we need to worry. But we, we learned in that message, hey, let's replace worry, because that's a habit. Let's replace it with prayer. So replace the habit of worry with prayer. And we learned, hey, that's a good habit to develop, because then we're actually trusting someone who can change our situation instead of worrying about things that are probably never going to happen anyways. So that was our second week. And then last week in our series, we talked about one word that can help you fight and combat discontentment. Does anybody remember the word? What was the word? Thanks. Pretty simple. But even psychological studies have shown that if we give thanks, and especially if we give thanks to God, it can help us be content and happy all the time. And it's not like, once I get what I want, then I'll be thankful. No, no, no. It's while we're going. You say thanks even when things are rough, saying, God, I know, and I thank you for being in control right now. So that's what we've talked about. And today we're going to talk about one of the biggest enemies of our contentment, and that is our busyness. It's one of our busyness. We're going to talk about how can we beat our busyness. How can we beat our busyness? And this is so important. This whole series comes from Philippians chapter 4, except for this message. But I thought this idea, this concept is so important that I wanted us to talk about it because it is one of our biggest issues. It's one of our biggest issues. How do we battle the busyness of our lives? Because there's so much going on. How do we handle it? So, I I think it's interesting. As I was doing research, I found that 50 years ago, in 1967, they were worried about something. There was a crisis looming on the horizon in our nation and in our lives. Do you know what it was? that people would have too much time on their hands. Seriously, this is what they were worried about. So many technological advances, people, you know, all all the manufacturing advances, there wouldn't be enough jobs, everybody would be at home, the average work week would be 22 hours. This is what the experts said. And they're like, how are we going to solve this crisis that's looming? But what has happened in our nation in the last 50 years? The exact opposite. We've been working more and more hours. In fact, the United States leads the industrialized world in how many hours we work in a week. The average full-time worker now works 47 hours. That's the average, right? So that means a lot of people are working more than that. Some of you are even thinking, Matt, if I only worked 47 hours, my life would be so great. We're busy. We're working all the time. And it's not just people who work outside of the home. It's people that work inside the home, too, that feel this busyness. I read this essay uh, a while back that was written on Facebook by a stay-at-home mom, Cameron Reeves Poitner. 
She wrote this. She said, I am the keeper. I am the keeper of schedules, of practices, games and lessons, of projects, parties and dinners, of appointments and homework assignments. There's a whole other list of things she mentioned. She said, I am the keeper of emotional security, the repository of comfort, the navigator of bad moods, the holder of secrets and the soother of fears. And this woman had served as an attorney for a while. She was like, now this is harder. She said, sometimes the weight of the things I keep pulls me down below the surface until I am kicking and struggling to break the surface and gasp for breath. Being the keeper is exhausting because you feel like you're doing it alone. So we have this busyness in our life, don't we? Have you ever felt that way? That you're like kicking and screaming, how can I even get my head above water right now? There's so much going on in in work, staying home, taking care of the kids. How can I even fit this function in? How can I volunteer? How can I go to church? I mean, man, life is busy. It's busy. So what I'm going to teach you today is how to be more productive. Isn't that what you want? How to be more productive and fit even more in to your life? No, but that's what our world teaches us. Seriously, <laughs> I, I've read some books on, on productivity and I'm like, man, I leave exhausted after reading those books. Like, how can I be more productive? No, no, no. We've got to figure out how do we deal with busyness because busyness is one of the biggest enemies of our contentment. It really is. In one of those books I read, it was a secular book, not by a Christian author, he said that after coaching thousands of people on productivity... He's one of the leading experts in our country. He said, after working with thousands of people, I found that the thing that causes the most stress and the most anxiety in people I worked with was all the things that they said yes to. There's too much on their plate. Too much. We're so busy. How can we do even more? So we're going to talk today, hopefully not about how we can fit even more in, right? We need something better than that. Thankfully, God has something better for us in Luke jumping out of Philippians 4 today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It's a very short story we're going to cover today. You can follow on your smartphone. We'll have the verses up here. But we're going to jump into this story where we read in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So I want to point out two important things in this passage. And actually, before I do that, I, I had planned this months ago that I was going to do this topic in this, this passage. And I asked a few women this week, said, hey, Mother's Day is next week. Should I wait and do this story next week? And they said emphatically, no. I was like, whoa. And one of them had a really good point. She said, if you preach this message on Mother's Day, the men won't listen. Because it's about two women in this story. So guys, Listen. Okay, this is for all of us in here. We all need to learn how to beat busyness, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, all the different things that are going on. We're so busy, so how do we beat it? So now that we're all paying attention, I want to point out two things from just this first verse. It says that Jesus and his disciples were on their way. They're teaching. They're going from village to village, ministering. And it says, where a woman named Martha opened her home. So that's the first thing I want you to notice, her home. Now, this woman, Martha, comes up a few other times in the Bible. She's very important. And she had two siblings that were also very important in the Bible. One is named Mary, who we're going to be introduced today, probably her younger sister. But she also had a brother. Does anybody know his name? Lazarus. Wow, you guys are good. You guys are good. Lazarus. And Lazarus has a very famous story about him in, in John chapter 11, because Lazarus died. Okay, why I point this out 
is because they all three probably lived in the same home, but it doesn't say Lazarus' home. It doesn't say Mary's home. It says Martha's home. She was a leader. Okay, I, I want to point this out because she is a big deal, and she is someone we should admire. Some of you have heard this story before. There's even a book called How to Be a Mary in a Martha World. Some of you have read it. It's a good, good concept, but we, we so downplay Martha, but she was a strong woman. She was a leader. This was her house. And she was going to open up her home for a great dignitary, a visiting teacher, Jesus. She's a big deal. She's a leader and she gets stuff done. What's really interesting is in that story when Lazarus, her brother, dies, Mary's at home weeping, can't hold herself together, but Martha marches out to Jesus and she confronts him. She says, why weren't you here? Why didn't you do anything about this, Jesus? You could have. Why I love that is because she was an assertive woman. She was a leader. She's someone that we admire in our day. Not just women, but men too. We say, this is who we want to be, right? Assertive, a leader. So that's the first thing I want you to notice from this verse. And the second thing is that she was opening her home. She was opening her home. She was showing hospitality. Now, hospitality is a very good thing in any culture, but especially in Middle Eastern culture. It's still, to this day, is a very big deal. In the Bible, hospitality is talked about all over the place. It's a biblical concept. We're taught that elders, the leaders of the church, have to be hospitable. That's one of the requirements to be a leader in the church. You have to show hospitality. It's talked about in Hebrews chapter 13 that you're supposed to, supposed to show hospitality to strangers in case there's an angel. Hospitality is a big deal. It's important. So she's doing what she's supposed to do. She's opening her home. She's showing hospitality. She should be admired. So let's just start right there. And now I want us to think about what's going on in this story. She has her home. She's managing it. She's the leader. And now Jesus is coming to town. Jesus is coming to town. Now, I don't know about you, but my mom always said a phrase when I was growing up. Maybe some of you guys got this. Whenever we'd get the house ready for guests, people staying or coming over for dinner, she always said, uh, is that good enough for the queen? What if the queen were coming to dinner? That was always her question. Did anybody get a question like that from their parents? And their mom? I don't know why, but my mom always asked me that question. What if the queen were coming to dinner? Maybe some of you got, what if the president were coming? And you know, I have found that I had a chore every night growing up that doesn't even like exist. Like it only existed in my household. And do you know what it was? Setting the table. Some of you guys do this, but I've been to your houses. You know, we don't, we don't, we're like, set the table, just get the dishes. You can get silverware out of the drawer yourself, right? But no, 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 not in my household. We had to get the placemats perfect. I had to put the plates there and then I had to fold a napkin. I had to make sure the, the fork was on one side and the knife and spoon on the other. I had to get all the glasses filled with, with the beverage for each person, right? And I had to get condiments on the table. This was my job every night. But when somebody important was coming over, when we had guests, oh, it was an even bigger deal. Because then we had to like clean the bathrooms. We had to make sure the floor was vacuumed. We had to make sure everything was looking good. When I was older, I had to mow the lawn. Everything had to be perfect. Did anybody have parents like that? Okay, when guests were coming over, it was a big deal. And she always said, what if the queen were coming? And I was always thinking, well, we'd probably do something more than build your own tacos. Right? <laughs> but, but that's beside the point. Now, I, I understood the concept. Okay, we've got to make it right. But now, Jesus is coming to town. The queen, we're Americans. We don't care about the queen, right? <laughs> we're Americans. But, but, okay, Jesus is coming over. And Jesus is a big deal. He was a huge deal in those days. He was very popular, and yes, he was also controversial, but he was very popular. 
Already at this point in the Gospel of Luke, there was a time that he was speaking and over 5,000 people there. In fact, it says 5,000 men. Meaning, if you counted the women and children, it'd probably be more like 15,000 plus people. And this was before microphones. They're out on a hillside, just like, okay, we want to hear this guy, it's so important. There's one point in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus has to get in a boat so he can address so many people on the shore. There's so many people that want to hear Jesus. He's teaching, he's performing miracles, people are being healed. It's incredible. Everybody wants to meet Jesus. He's a rock star. Okay, so whoever that person is, if it's not the queen for you, who's that person? You're like, what if Peyton Manning were coming over to dinner? Ooh, that's a big deal. (laughs) This is Broncos country, right? Peyton Manning's coming. Whoa, that's a big deal. I don't know who the person is for you, but they're coming to dinner. You've got to get everything right and ready. And this is what was going on with Martha. Jesus is coming. But then we keep reading in verse 39. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Hmm. Okay. I want to stop right there. And this isn't really part of our big idea, but it's so important I want to give it to you as what I call a bonus point. When it says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet, this is a big deal. This is a big deal because that phrase, sitting at the Lord's feet, is actually a technical term for a a disciple of a rabbi. And why this is a big deal, because in Jesus' day, it was not okay for women to be disciples of rabbis. But Jesus is teaching her, and she's sitting at his feet. It's, so when you're sitting at someone's feet, it's like you're, you're subservient to them, you're, you're humble, and you're listening to them, learning from them. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you, learn from you. I want to be like you. And Jesus is completely good with having this woman sit at his feet. Why I say this is because there's a lot of bad press about Christianity and how it relates to women, but people don't read about what actually Jesus did. Because he loved and cared about women. He viewed them as made in the image of God, just like the Bible teaches Equal in God's eyes with men. Yeah, of course, men and women are different, but they're equal. So I point that out. It's a bonus point, but it's important, right? Jesus is saying, hey, this woman's sitting at my feet. She's a disciple learning from me. Awesome. But I don't think it was so awesome right then from Martha's perspective. Right? She's working. She's getting everything ready. The meal ready. Probably Jesus and his disciples were staying in their home. Got to make sure that the, the sheets are fitted on there right. Everything's folded. The trash is out. They got to make sure everything smells right. Okay, you got to get Lysol sprayed in there. Make sure everything's cleaned up. Everything has to be perfect because Jesus is staying there for the night. But Mary, her sister, is sitting at the Lord's feet. Meaning she's not doing anything. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Can't you just see her right there? Can you imagine what she's feeling? She's distracted because there's so much to do. We've got to make sure that the the meat is the right temperature. We've got to make sure the vegetables are in the right serving tray. We've got to have the right dishes out. You know, we've got to have the, the, the silverware correct. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. This is a big deal because Jesus is there. She's distracted. And then this is what happens in verse... 40b. It says that Martha came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I kind of feel for her, don't you? I remember what it was like trying to get everything ready just to make my mom happy, right? And if I was sitting down, I would have gotten the treatment, right? We've got to get everything ready. And Martha's like, this is an important dignitary, a teacher. We've got to do something nice for him. Come on, every, all hands on deck. Mary, what are you doing? 
And what happens is all these things that she's thinking about, I have to do this, and I have to do that, I have to do this and that, it's, it's getting her busy. She's distracted. And what's happening is she's getting stress internally, right? You can just see it going on in her heart. She's, she's distracted in her mind, in her heart. She's feeling the stress, and it's causing her to be irritable, angry. And what happens then is it doesn't just stay internally. It begins to seep out, right? Now she's mad at her sister, now she's mad at her sister. Isn't this what happens when we get irritable and angry and stressed? We take it out on the people that are closest to us. So we do. When we get angry, we're so busy with work, there's this thing coming up, this big project happening, and then we're mean to our spouse. We take it out on our kids. We're angry at our closest friends. People that care about it the most. And that's what's happening. And to make it even worse, she's mad at Jesus. Tell her to help me, Jesus. Come on, aren't you going to do something about this? She's angry at the person that she's serving. <laughs> this is what happens. We get, even get angry at God about what's going on because we're so busy. There's so much to do. There's always more to do. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Hmm. Matt, I thought you said that this was a culture that showed hospitality. It was a big deal in the Bible. Isn't she doing what she's supposed to do? This is an important person. Do you, any of you feel that way? We should feel that way. Because Martha's a leader. She's someone we respect and admire. She's showing hospitality. But yet Jesus says, even that, it seems good, it seems important, but it's not. There's something even more important than all the busyness you're involved in. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to Martha and he's saying to all of us, men included, he's saying, choose what's best over busyness. Jesus is telling Martha and he's telling us, he's saying, hey, you're busy. There's always more to do. There's always stuff to do. But I want you to choose what's best over the busyness of doing the next thing. This should be hard for us. We should be like, mm, I don't know about that. Because that's how Martha would have felt. She's like, I'm doing something nice for you, Jesus. That's why she was upset. But even Jesus to that says, no, choose what's best over busyness. I read that book on productivity that wasn't written by a Christian. I read another one written by a Christian, and it was helpful. It was actually called What's Best Next. It was based on this principle. What's the best thing to do next? I, I like that book. The other one, though, I read it, and I was like, man, I can't do all this, because part of the recommendation was to get everything in your house out in the open so that you go through every single thing, because once you've gone through every closet, every drawer, and have everything in order, all your notes labeled and in the right place and everything figured out, and you have this system that he recommended, it was a good system. Once you have that all in the place, then your mind will be like water. That's what this book said. And you can just let things flow right over you, right? <sighs> My mind is like... And you know what it did to me? It stressed me out. It really did. Because I'm like, there's no way I can go through every drawer and get to every closet. I mean, that would take weeks. And even after I did that, there'd be something else I need to do. I'd remember about another thing I have to do. And I have to call this person. And I, have to, I haven't talked to that person in so long. There's always another thing, isn't there? That's the problem with busyness. I was talking to someone after the first service... And it's just like we fall into busyness because you're just doing things. I'm sure that Martha, she thought, probably had everything at least nicely in order by the time Jesus got there. 
But then she's like, oh no, I've got to check, check on the temperature of that. Oh, I forgot to take out that trash. I forgot to wipe that floor. I, I better polish the silverware. I forgot about that. Because the thing is, there's always something more to do. Not just for showing hospitality, but for all of life. There's always another thing to do. So you never can accomplish and get everything done, but what we need to do is to learn how to choose what's best over busyness. Choose what's best over business. What I love about this passage, too, is how Jesus speaks to Martha. Now, I had to do some studying into this, but let's pull up that passage again um, where, where Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Did you notice that? Now, we read that and, and we kind of think, well, that kind of sounds harsh. Martha, Martha, come on. But that's not how it goes. See, Jesus was very um, fluent in Hebrew. He would have learned it as a kid growing up. He, he would have studied it and known it. And in Hebrew, when you say a word twice, it's a big deal. I was thinking about it the first time I thought of it in the, in the Old Testament was when God says, don't eat from that fruit from the tree of the garden, because if you do, you will surely die. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, you will die, die. Dying, you will die. It's so emphatic. It's like the worst type of death you can imagine. <laughs> don't sin, okay? That's what God is saying. So when you say something twice, it's emphatic. And here's even something more interesting. As I was studying this, Jesus often said words twice. He said, like, truly, truly, I tell you, again, again. So he says these things twice. But only a few times does Jesus say uh, a name twice. In fact, I could find only two other instances. One was when Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem, and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you in my arms like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Because God, Jesus loved Jerusalem so much that he wanted them to, re- to repent of their sin and turn to God. He loved them and he was weeping as he said this. He was so sad. And then the second time was when he himself was on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every time Jesus says someone's name twice, he says it with tears in his eyes. So when he's talking to Martha, he's not rebuking her. What are you doing, Martha? Get over here. Who cares about the food? He's saying, Martha, I love you. Martha, Martha. You're so focused on this busyness of all the things that are going on. What I want you to choose is what's best because I care about you and I love you. And I could just hear this week God saying to me, Matt, Matt, choose what's best. Jimmy, Jimmy. I don't want you to worry about being so busy. Steph, Steph, I love you. I care about you. This is what Jesus is saying to each one of us in this message. He's not trying to rebuke you, not trying to get you, say, you're doing the wrong things. No, he says, no, I want what's best for you because I love you. Because I love you. So what I want to do right now is because this is kind of like, okay, that's a great concept, Matt, great big idea, but... Let's, let's bring it down a notch. Okay, what does it actually mean for me? So I want to give you five applications from this passage about how we choose what's best over busyness. Okay? And the first one is to choose to eliminate distractions. Back in verse 40, it said that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She was distracted. She was seeing all the things. Now, it's not always in our power to eliminate distractions. You have the crying baby. It's like, can't do anything about that. You know, we try, but okay. But there are some distractions that we can eliminate. We can turn off the notifications on our phone. We can put it on do not disturb, right? We can turn it off or leave it in another room for a time, can't we? 
we can unsubscribe from some emails. So we're not getting that. Or, or say, hey, I'm out of the office right now. Put that out of office email so I don't have to deal with your urgent crisis because it's not. You're just stressed out about it. I don't want to be stressed. I want to eliminate distractions. Did you hear about the young girl that started praying, Lord, deliver us from email? Sometimes we need to pray that, right? Because there's all these distractions. So let's do whatever we can to eliminate the distractions that we can so that we can focus on what's best, so we can make a good decision, not think, what's the next thing I need to do? What's the next thing? So that's the first one. Choose to eliminate distractions. Here's the second one. To choose to say no. I know some of you guys don't know this word, so I want to teach it to you. So what I want you to do is turn to the person on your left and right and say no. No. Yeah, just say no. Okay, now that I know that everybody knows that word, I want to challenge you guys to do that. Jesus said, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. He's saying there's so many things that are going on all the time. There's always another thing to do. What he's saying is just pare it back. Say no to some things, even good things. It was good for her to want to show hospitality. But Jesus is saying, no, there's, let's step back because there's something even better. That, that's why I mentioned in that productivity book written by a non-Christian, and he said, after coaching thousands and thousands of people, I found that the thing that caused the most stress in people's lives was that they took on too many obligations. They said yes to too many things. That's the thing. And when you say yes to something, you say no to something else. That's just the nature of the decisions that we make. So we have to learn to say no to a lot of even good things. Because we're saying, hey, I need to do what's best over just busyness. I know this is hard for me to say because I'm always asking you guys to do stuff, right? <laughs> to volunteer or do this. But here's, here's the thing. If we're ever like, Matt, I can't handle all the things I have to do in my life. What I want to tell you is that God didn't give you those things to do. You gave yourself those things. I'm saying if we have too many, we give ourselves those things, right? It's not God. We can step back because God is not a bad manager. He's not. He's not going to give you way too many things to do. I can't get it all done. No, no, no. God knows exactly what you can do and that gives you, gives you those things to handle. So when we have too much to handle, we probably said yes to something we shouldn't have. So we've got to learn and choose to say no to some things. Here's the third application. Choose to rest. Isn't that Mary was, what, what she was doing? Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening. When you're sitting, you're not doing. You're not rushing around trying to figure out what's the next thing I need to do. You're sitting, you're resting. Resting is a big deal in the Bible. In fact, after God, the omnipotent, all-powerful creator of the entire universe, finished creating the world, he rested. Did he need to? No. That's the point. He did it for our example. Think about this. If you were going to set up a nation and give them things that they have to do, these are the ten top things that I want you to do, would you put in there, take a day off? Most of us wouldn't, but God did. Taking a day off is that important? Because we need it. We need to spend time resting, spend time worshiping, time away from all the work. You know, there's been lots of studies on productivity, and it's actually like there comes a point in your work and how many hours you're putting in that you become less productive. You know, there's a sweet spot depending on the industry and the job, but we know this, like you can't work all the time. We have to take a day off if we want to be the most productive, right? So sometimes we just need to learn to rest, and we need to learn to rest every day, Choose to rest every week. These are important things if we want to be content. 
Because there's always more we could be doing. Here's the next thing. Choose what lasts. I love that Jesus said that Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. This, this is significant because what Jesus is kind of giving us a principle here and I think it could help us with all the decisions we make if we just la- say what lasts longer. What lasts longer? What's more important here? And I say that because we can look at it in a lot of different lenses. We say, okay, what will last longer? The trophies that my 18-year-old has when they leave the house or their relationship with Jesus and the character that we will build in when they're 30. Okay, what's more important? What about with your career? You're going to retire after 30, 40 years if you have a long career. Do you still want a relationship with your kids? What's going to last longer? Or how about this? Your kids are going to leave the house after 18 years and you're still going to be married. So what's going to last longer? Let's focus on our marriages because they will last longer, God willing, than even our kids at home. Or what's going to last longer than even everything we do in this life? Our relationship with God. Our relationship with Jesus. A lot of us may have a five-year plan if we're really focused, dialed in. We should have a trillion-year plan because we're going to spend trillions upon trillions of years in heaven with God. Any time we spend with him, we'll make that relationship even better when we think about eternity. What lasts? Kay Warren, in her book, Choose Joy, says this, If there is a secret to joy, this is it. Choose the eternal over the temporary. What lasts? Just think about that. What is going to last longer here? Let's focus on that. The meal, the best meal in the world, okay, it's going to be gone in a few hours. Maybe you'll have some leftovers for a week. People will be talking about it for probably never. Never. They won't remember the meal. Maybe they'll put it on Instagram. So that's what Jesus is saying. There's something that lasts even longer. And then this is what the, the fifth thing that we need to choose. So we need to choose Jesus. Because Mary sat at the Lord's feet. This is when Jesus said, there's something that's the most important that Mary has chosen, to be and spend time with me. Now this, I don't have a fill-in-the-blank, fancy fill-in-the-blank for you, but I want you to write this down, those of you taking notes. Being with Jesus is more important than doing for Jesus. It's hard for a pastor to say because I want you to do a lot, right? always asking you, calling people up, would you volunteer for this? But I'm saying this because this is the truth. Martha was preparing a meal for the Savior of the universe. She was serving Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 there's something even better than that. Just being with me. That's important for a pastor to hear, right? Those Those of us who are volunteering and serving in different ministries, we often think, oh, that's the most important thing. No, 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 it's not not. Are we spending time with Jesus daily? Weekly? Are we making that the highest priority? That we won't do anything else until we do that? That's what Jesus is telling us to do. And this is what I want to challenge you again. If you're saying, well, Matt, I don't have time for that. Some of you have been watching online because you're like, I don't have time to go to church ever. I want to challenge you that if you don't have time for Jesus, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Ooh, that's kind of hard hitting stepping on some toes, right? Actually, I was aiming for the heart, so maybe I missed. 
What I don't want you to do is hear this message and feel that there's more that you have to do. Well, I guess I'm going to have to get out my planner and my scheduler and I've got to make sure that I get this next thing. I've got to do this and this and this. Here's I need to spend more time with my kids. My point is not to give you more to do. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Because what I want you to see most of all is that Jesus did it all. Let's think about this. Jesus came and he was the only perfect righteous person. He was the only one who did all the things God wanted him to do. He didn't do any wrong and he did all the right things. He's the only person. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And what I love is even as he was ministering to people, he still took time to be alone with God. He was perfect. He did everything right and yet he still was convicted for a crime he did not commit. And he died on the cross. And do you know what he said when he was hanging on the cross? It is finished. It's done. It's over. I have lived up to the requirements that no one else has been able to. I've been perfect when no one else could be perfect. I have done it all. And then once he died, once he rose from the dead, then it says he ascended into heaven where he sat at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down because he was done. (laughs) He was finished. It's over, Jesus is saying. He said, I did everything that you have to do and couldn't do. And if you trust in me, it will all be finished. Because here's the thing. We feel like we need to do more and be busier and do the next thing because we want to be maybe a better Christian, a better parent. We want to be the best mom so you can post something on Instagram and everybody sees it and like, oh, I want to be a mom like that, right? You, You know, I want to be the best in my career. I want to achieve more. I want to do more. Even good things, I want to do it for God. But Jesus is saying it's already all done. It's finished. That right now, if you believe in me, you are accepted and loved. You are the perfect mom, the perfect spouse, the perfect worker. I love you and accept you just the way you are. And that's good news. That's very good news. So we're going to have the band come up right now. And and what we're going to do is we're going to take communion. We do this once a month here because we want to remember what Jesus did, that it is finished. So we take the bread, it represents that Jesus' body was broken. As we drink the cup, we remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us in our place. He did everything that we could never do. So what we're going to do is we're going to pass out the bread and the cup, and I want you to hold on to them. And this is for anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ, or maybe for the first time you're saying, I think I do believe, take this with us. It's for you. And I want you to hold on to it and take those few minutes as the band is playing, and I want you to rest at Jesus' feet. I just want you to realize that Jesus has done it all and that you could never do it. There's a great old hymn that says the words, um, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. So let's lay our doing down this morning. Except the one who did it all for us on the cross. And then maybe we can learn to choose what's best over business. Let's pray. God, we come to you and and we are all so busy and it takes away our contentment, it takes away our joy and we want it back. Help us not to find the next thing we have to do, but instead to rest and sit at your feet. Not only right now for the next few minutes, but every day, every week, in our whole life that we would be able to, to put these choices into practice that we could always choose what's best that we could always choose you 
over the thing that we think is important, over the busyness of our lives. Lord, empower us through your spirit to choose what's best. Amen.